everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another week on Bulletproof Hygiene. We are excited to have you here with us today. And Brittany and I are going to be talking about how we take care of our patients that are pregnant or dealing with infertility. And I just think it's a really relevant topic. We obviously see pregnant patients a good bit of our population. Um, and I think we'd all agree that as hygienists, we one of the greatest gifts we're given and really honestly the reason that we're all in it is because we get to care for others. And I just think we have to be especially mindful when we're caring for our pregnant patients and those dealing with infertility. There's a lot of considerations we need to take into account. And thankfully, I think we're really blessed that we live in an era of really great technology um, to be able to facilitate healthy pregnancy outcomes. And um, we just wanna talk a lot to today about the what the research shows and that we can really have a significant impact on pregnancy, healthy pregnancy outcomes and infertil infertility reduction. So we wanted to start with looking at some stats. Um, back last year in 2020, the CDC states that there were 605,201 births in the United States. And good news is that preterm births have dropped from the previous year by 2.7%. And then when we look at the rates of infertility, it looks like about 6% of married women aged 15 to 44 uh, in the United States are unable to get pregnant after one year of trying. And about 12% of women aged 15 to 44 in the US have difficulty getting pregnant or carrying a pregnancy to term. Wow. So that those are, those are big numbers we're dealing with. Yeah. I always feel, um, you know, I am somewhat familiar with a lot of these stats and I've read a lot in, you know, I have a lot of book knowledge and head knowledge about pregnancy and perio and gingivitis and, you know, pregnancy, um, adverse pregnancy outcomes being, a you know, a risk of having active periodontitis and having, the periopathogens uh, above threshold or even just present in our mouths. I am, it's such an interesting kind of situation for me personally, because I feel a little ill-prepared anytime we talk about pregnancy, because I've never had a baby. I've never been pregnant. You know, I never have gone through all of the things that pregnant women go through, like their whole experience, their whole body experience, what they're experiencing in their mouth. So it's like interesting because I feel like I can relate to women on every other like level, you know, having to do with hormones and how you do with changes and having to do with um, other difficulties that can affect our oral health. But this is one that I can't speak from personally. So it's a little bit of an, an uncomfortable um, topic for me only because of my lack of like actual experience and inability to empathize completely. So I'm kind of leaning on you in regards to this one, Teresa. I am totally on board with the book knowledge, but you've got to speak from, from your uh, hefty experience with your two teenage boys and, and going through the 
two pregnancies and what that was like for you? Right. Well, the good news is that there has, there's so much research out now Mm -hmm. that, you know, really that is what we get to rest on. And, um, you know, obviously we're not walking with those patients on the day-to-day of their Mm -hmm. lives and of their lives and how their bodies are feeling and changing. Um, but we are there chair side with them to help do the assessments necessary and really help think through the treatments that are going to be most beneficial to them. Um, And I think we're all on the same page on that front. So that's where we're coming from today. I I think we would all agree. We all know that, you know, great oral health during pregnancy is vital to the health of the fetus. I think that's pretty well established. Um, We know that pregnancy gingivitis is common, but it's not healthy. And I think that's kind of a misnomer. I think, you know, patients in general, when they're talking about, you know, you ask, hey, are you seeing any bleeding when you're brushing or flossing? And, you know, are you seeing any pink in the sink? And they're like, oh yeah. And they, you know, they don't think that's any big deal. Like, oh yeah, that's normal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had pregnant patients say that, oh yeah, I know gingivitis, you know, pregnancy gingivitis is normal. And I don't want to just blow by that. And I kind of stop and go, you know what, unfortunately it is fairly normal, but it's not healthy. And we want to make sure that patients really understand that aspect of it. Yeah. I like the distinction between common and healthy. So it is very common. However, it is not normal and it is not healthy and it can still have, even though inflammation during pregnancy due to hormones, like in the, the host response to the hormones, basically, and the sensitivity to bacteria and things that are going on in the mouth, that might be a transient situation given pregnancy, but the outcome of that inflammation isn't necessarily transient. So if that inflammation starts causing bone loss or you have systemic, you know, side effects or pregnancy complications, clearly that's not a transient issue. It's something that can be long lasting and impact you for the rest of your life. It can impact your baby's life. It can impact, you know, the health of your mouth and your teeth moving forward. So I, I tell pregnancy patients too, like, yes, very, very common. This is not an uncommon thing. It's not your fault. It has a lot to do with that hormonal influx. However, we still have to manage this even, even knowing that it's probably going to resolve and go away, you know, at some point after you get birth or after you're done breastfeeding um, and the hormones kind of stabilize and kind of normalize again over a period of months, we still got to treat the acute symptoms because I don't want it to lead to long-term issues for you. Right. And the way that, you know, I think what you just said is really important, helping patients understand, again, you know, Brittany and I are always big and talking about, you know, you remove the shame and blame because here's what we know that plaque in particular can become really opportunistic during pregnancy because of all of those hormonal changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're, sometimes that means your previous home, home care habits may not be sufficient during pregnancy. So, you know, we don't want patients to feel like, you know, you, well, I'm, I'm doing all I can in there and, and, you know, I'm still having the inflammation and all of a sudden I'm noticing this bleeding and it's like, yeah, that's actually not your fault. It's what's going on with you physiologically. Mm-hmm. And I like to tell my patients that, you know, they're in this phase where, you know, all of these hormones are kind of raging. We've got the estrogen and the progesterone and, and all of that going on. And it's basically softening up the uterine tissue so that everything can stretch and grow. Well, gingival tissue is really similar to uterine tissue, and it also softens the gingival tissue and makes it more susceptible to those bacteria. So, you know, it's just one of those, you're in kind of a hyper uh, responsive state right now with this pregnancy. So we've got to do all we can to really maintain the healthiest, um, you know, biofilm that's in your mouth with that microbiome of the mouth so that we can help help you have the healthiest pregnancy as possible. So we want to dig into the science behind um, all of this and look at the research. And um, we're going to attach the links for several of these articles that we're talking about today. So you can kind of go back and look at them for yourselves. 
Um, but I want to start out with there. There was a longitudinal study done on Japanese women, um, and this was published last year in April. And it was a study that determined the quantity of periodontopathic bacteria in saliva, subgingival plaque, and the placenta on preterm labor and preterm low birth weight subjects. And they were trying to identify the specific periodontal pathogens with high association to adverse pregnancy outcomes. So what they found was there were six different periodontal pathogens that played a role in preterm low birth weight uh, babies and deliveries. Um, and it was, you know, these top six we're pretty familiar with. These are some of our strongest perio players. It's our AA, our PG, our TF, TD, FN, and PI. And they found those all in present in subgingival plaque, saliva, placenta tissue, and the IgG serum titers. So it's literally hanging out everywhere. Mm -hmm. So what they found were 13 of 64 birds delivered preterm low birth weight infants. All six of those pathogens were detected in the placental samples for all of those babies that were preterm low birth weight. And the amount of FN and detection frequency of TD in those placental samples was significantly, significantly higher in the preterm labor group than in the healthy group. So meanwhile, the other factor that seems to really play into it is the age of the patient. So they also found that in another category, the age, the anti-PG IgG serums, the amount of PG and TF in plaque samples, detection frequency of PI and saliva, and percentage of pocket probing depths above five millimeters were higher in preterm low birth weight births than those of just the preterm or the preterm labor healthy delivery group. So basically the findings suggested that all six pathogens have access to the placenta and the increased presence of FN in placenta is more related to preterm labor while advanced maternal age has a stronger association with the low birth weight preterm labor. Interesting. So, you know, we got to think about when we're looking at our patients and we're looking in their mouths, you know, obviously the bacteria is a big, big part of this, but we also want to be thinking about our patients that are, um, a, you know, a little further along in age as they are carrying that, that is a, it seems to be a big factor. Um, there's a few other studies out. Um, Dr. Yipping Han has been doing research for a really long time, and I've had the pr privilege of sitting under her teaching, um, and she did a big presentation one year up at the Cleveland Clinic in, uh, through AOSH, and I remember sitting in her course and, and literally getting chill bumps as she was going through this, these studies, and I looked at my doctor and I said, I will never treat a pregnant woman the same. Like I just, there's part of me that's like, can, can you go see somebody else? Cause this is so much responsibility. I don't want to mess this up for you. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like her findings are pretty incredible. Um, the first study she did focused on transmission of diverse oral bacteria to murine placenta. And basically it was evidence for the oral microbiome as a potential source of intrauterine infection. And this study found that microbial infection of the intrauterine environment is a major cause of preterm birth. The current paradigm indicates that intrauterine infections predominantly originate from the vaginal tract, with the organisms ascending into the sterile uterus. 
with the improvements in technology, an increasing number of bacterial species have been identified in interuterine infections that do not belong to the vaginal microflora. We've demonstrated previously that intrauterine infections can originate from the oral cavity following hematogenous transmission. In this study, we begin to systematically examine what proportion of the oral microbiome can translocate to the placenta. So pooled saliva and pooled subgingival plaque samples were injected into pregnant mice through tail veins to mimic bacteremia, which occurs frequently during periodontal infections. We know that. The microbial species colonizing the murine placenta were detected using 16S RNA gene-based PCR and clone anal analysis. A diverse group of bacterial species were identified, many of which have been associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes in humans, although their sources of in infection were not determined. Interestingly, the majority of these species were oral commensal organisms. This may be due to a dose effect, but may also indicate a unique role of commensal species in intrauterine infection. In addition, a number of species were selectively enriched during the translocation with a higher prevalence in the placenta than in the pooled saliva or subgingival plaque samples. These observations indicate that the placental translocation was spe species specific. This study provides the first insight into the diversity of oral bacteria associated with intrauterine infection. So it's, what it showed here is that the oral microbiome, the oral pathogens um, have the access once they hit that bloodstream to be able to infect the placenta. And you know that is pretty terrifying because we know that typically the placenta remains a sterile environment and that's a healthy environment for the, the baby to grow in. So if we've got bacteria that can make their way through and specifically, I remember her talking about um, the spirochetes being, you know, that little coil shape, much like in uh, Alzheimer's disease, you know, they have that capability to kind of bore their way through that placenta. So it's a, it's a pretty scary concept and we want to make sure that we are not allowing high levels of that to be occurring in our patients' mouths. So the second study she did, this one's pretty shocking to me, it shows term stillbirth caused by Fusobacterium nucleatum. Wow. So the background, and I'm not going to go through this whole study, but the background was, um, you know, that they know that inter intrauterine infection is a recognized cause of adverse pregnancy outcome, but the source of infection is often undetermined. We report a case of stillbirth caused by FN that originated in the mother's mouth. So this specific case was a woman with pregnancy-associated gingivitis experienced an upper respiratory tract infection at term followed by stillbirth a few days later. Fusobacterium nucleatum was isolated from the placenta and the infant. Examination of different micro microbial flora from the mother identified the same clone in her subgingival plaque, but not in the supragingival plaque, vagina or rectum. The conclusion was that the F nucleatum may have translocated from the mother's mouth to the uterus when the immune system was weakened during the respiratory infection. This case sheds light on patient management for those with pregnancy-associated gingivitis. So I want to repeat a, a special little segment out of here that, that makes me treat patients the way that I do. It says here, 
that the fusobacterium nucleatum was isolated from the placenta and the infant, and that examination of different microbial flora from the mother identified the same clone in her subgingival plaque, but not in the supragingival plaque. Hmm. Okay. So that, that's a big deal to me, and we'll talk a little more about this, but you know, when we have our patients come in and we're asking them, are you seeing bleeding when you're brushing and flossing? And they're like, oh yeah, you know, I've got some, my, my gums have been irritated since the pregnancy. Yeah. Well, we know that the capability of brush bristles and floss to really reach down subgingivally aren't great. But we know that when we're doing our perio or our non-surgical periotherapy, we're getting down into that subgingival area and disrupting those microorganisms. So I know a lot of times there's the argument for, well, you know, patients are already creating their own bacteremia. And yes, I agree with it that that's true. But based off this finding, it makes me a little more nervous to be treating a patient with scaling and root planing, um, knowing that sometimes those, well, not sometimes, knowing that those pathogens are subgingival and we're really disrupting them at a high rate while that bleeding is going on. So that th these findings are what made me a little more leery about just jumping in to doing scaling and root planing and, and kind of thinking about it from a different direction. Well, that makes sense from, was it P. gingivalis that they're specifically talking about? Or no, it's, it's F. nucleatum. F yeah, because they're, they're all anaerobes or facultative right. anaerobes, so they can't survive in oxygen. So we're not likely to find those, you know, super gingivally, we're likely to find them down in the right. carrier pocket. So that makes perfect sense. Right. So I wanted to, you know, to me, that's just all of that research is, is very enlightening on, you know, what those microbes are able to do in, in a pregnancy. But I want to shift the scales a little bit and talk about infertility. Um, and this was a really interesting article uh, published back in Dentistry IQ in May of 2018. Um, and it cited that periodontal disease has been proposed to have a negative effect on a couple's ability to conceive. According to the World Health Organization, roughly 8 to 10% of people are affected by infertility. Of those 8 to 10%, about half are related to male infertility. And I just want to really quickly do it, you know, the definition of infertility in this instance um, has been defined as the inability of a couple to achieve conception after a year or more, more of regular unprotected intercourse or the incapacity to carry a pregnancy to a live birth. So it is hypothesized that periodontal disease affects the reproductive system similar to the way it affects the rest of the body. So furthermore, an increase in inflammatory markers that come when we have periodontal disease can interfere with conception in two ways. It can prevent ovulation and it can prevent implementation of the embryo or not sustaining its implementation. So Haytack back in 2004 did a study that suggests that the periodontal status of an individual can have an effect on the success of infertility treatments because it can lead to bacteremia, endotoxemia, increased plasma levels of biologically active cytokines and increased immunity to HSP, which is heat shock proteins, all of which have been suggested to be associated with reproductive failure. A study performed by Paju in 2017 found that P. gingivalis had a role in TTC, which is, um, 
time, something time conception, how long it takes to conceive and could possibly be a marker for the association between periodontal disease and infertility. They found that the detection of PG in saliva and elevated concentrations of salivary antibodies against this periodontal species significantly increases the risks for unsuccessful conception among young women. They also found that women had an increased risk of not becoming pregnant if they had a high number of IgA antibodies against P. gingivalis, as well as signs of periodontal disease. This was one of the first studies to demonstrate the association between a specific periodontal pathogen with conception. So I wanna point out here, um, you know, we, I think we have oftentimes recognized the association with pregnancy and periodontal disease, but I'm not sure everyone's really aware of all of these issues with infertility and how having this active infection going on and all of these um, that, you know, like Brittany says, the host immune response and all of these cytokines present can really prevent pregnancy from occurring. And the burden does not lie solely on women. Um, according to Keller Sarian back in 2016, it's estimated that 48.5 million couples worldwide are unable to conceive and at least 40 to 50% of the cases are associated with male factor infertility. So as seen in studies of women, similar inflammatory response markers have been observed in relation to their effects on male infertility. And we all know that, you know, erectile dysfunction, they have seen a big correlation between the periodontal, pathog periodontal pathogens and erectile dysfunction. So it's been found that bacteremia, this is a tough word, bacteriospermia, may be initiated by an oral cavity infection that was spread by the blood. It was shown that the presence of IL-6 in the seminal fluid may be associated with infertility. Periodontal disease has been shown to have a positive so association with reduced sperm quality. It can cause an increase in the concentration of the bacteria in the ejaculate in a condition which is believed to lower the fertility of the male. Kelisarian also determined that systematically, or they systematically reviewed studies to determine whether there was a plausible association between oral disease and male factor infertility. In each of the seven studies they did, a positive correlation was shown between male infertility and various dental infections like caries, chronic periodontitis, and necrotic pulp. So, you know, for those patients, obviously it's not just Periodontal disease doesn't play just a role in the female side of infertility. It's also extremely pertinent in the male side of infertility. And I think, honestly, if I'm being super honest, I haven't thought about that much in the past. Um, you know, and I got to be honest, too. I don't think most of our male patients are super forthcoming and saying, hey, we've been struggling with infertility as much as our female patients might share that with us. Right. Do you find that to be true? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, there were some other really interesting studies because obviously there is a lot of money spent um, annually for all of these couples that are struggling with infertility and, and trying to get pregnant and going through um, infertility treatments. And so there are a couple of studies done and important information that I think we need to know in those cases so that we can really help those patients have successful outcomes and have, you know, be as healthy as possible. Obviously, you know, Hopefully, you know already that Brittany and I are not saying that, you know, 
we are in charge of whether or not this pregnancy goes well or whether or not our patients conceive. That, that is not what I'm saying at all. But I do think we can play a huge role in facilitating oral health, which as we know, can facilitate these other outcomes. Hey, Bulletproof Hygienists, it's Brittany and Charissa, and we are thrilled to announce that it's finally here, our comprehensive online mastery course. If you're anything like us, you know that hygiene is more than just a job, it's more than just a paycheck, and it's a whole lot more than just cleaning teeth. It's our calling. If you're ready to take the deep dive, become a top 1% hygienist, and move from going through the motions to loving what you do every day, boosting treatment acceptance, taking communication and team building to the next level, this course is designed for you. Master all the tools you'll need to make our successes your own. Everything from mindset and culture, team organization and calibration, to individualized best practices and verbiage for success. It's all there. Earn five CEs while building your own bulletproof hygiene practice with our proven methodology. To find our course, go to bph.dental and click courses on the left-hand side for all the details. So there was a study performed by Haytac um, where they measured periodontal changes in women who were undergoing fertility treatment for ovulation induction. They did this study back in 2004, and they observed that women who had been taking the medications for more than three menstrual cycles had increased levels of gingival inflammation and bleeding compared to those not on the drug therapy. They found that the increased levels of estrogen and progesterone may have acted as a growth factor that promoted the growth of periodontal pathogens in the biofilm. So that's something that's really important for us to be aware of. You know, when we're asking about medical history and patients say, oh yeah, I'm going through, you know, IVF treatment or I'm going through fertility treatments, you know, I'm getting taking injections and medications and all that kind of stuff. It's important that we share with them like, hey, you know, studies actually show that these kinds of hormones um, can actually act as a growth factor for the, the negative pathogens. So we want to make sure that we really up your home care. Maybe we need to see you more frequently. We need to really be mindful of that. Um, there was another, another study that found that the increase in estrogen and progesterone had an effect on the growth of PI. These findings show that these bacteria are able to utilize the steroid hormone as a growth factor and proliferate in the diseased periodontium. It, is also, it was also found that the high levels of the sex hormones could alter the host defense mechanism in the gingiva and depress neutrophil chemotaxis and phagocytosis. Because these drug therapies can result in gingival inflammation, there could also be a resulting increase in the inflammatory markers in the body. So as seen from previous studies, the increase of the inflammatory markers could lead to an increase in the time to conception, as well as interfere with conception itself. So obviously helping patients maintain or optimal oral health and reduce bacterial pathogens is imperative for both our pregnant population, as well as those dealing with infertility and going through treatments. So on that note, I think it's super important for us to discuss how we help them with that. And, you know, I just said this a minute ago that, you know, I know that that's an argument a lot of times is, you know, well, patients are already giving themselves bacteremia because they already have the inflammation and bleeding when they're brushing and flossing. And yes, I agree with that. But I feel like there is more danger when we are doing it because we are actively going to the base of those pockets and disrupting all of that pathogenic gram negative anaerobic bacteria 
directly into the bloodstream. So, you know, that being said, I, I just want to, I think we need to have that conversation. Um, I want to reference, there was a study done by Heimdall um, who showed that bacteremia is observed in 70% of patients after scaling was performed. And a separate study done by Killian determined that dissemination of oral micro microorganisms into the bloodstream is common and that less than one minute after an oral procedure, organisms from the infected site may have reached the heart, lungs, and peripheral blood capillary system. Yeah, I, I would just, I would love to know like what percentage bacteremia like there was before the disruption, because like clearly if the person has perio disease, that bloodstream is always connected to the bloodstream and the rest of the body. So I would act, I would love to see like the comparison because if it's significantly lower then yeah, we could be doing a great disservice by disrupting the bacteria causing more an increase in bacteremia. But if not, and it's comparable, then it's like, I wonder, I just want to see like big picture pros and cons, but something too, that I was thinking of when we were talking about um, it was found that the increase in estrogen and progesterone had an effect on the growth of P intermedia. It's just interesting how, you know, increase in estrogen and progesterone is a natural part of becoming pregnant, you know, and during pregnancy, but that is causing an increase in periopathogens. So just like this natural, healthy thing. So like the first thing I thought of was like diabetes and having uncontrolled diabetes, how that makes it more difficult to control your periodontal disease and vice versa. But diabetes is um, clearly not a healthy process. Diabetes is an illness. Pregnancy is not, you know, pregnancy is a very natural thing. So it's just interesting to me how this natural bodily function is like just that happening and, um, you know, being treated for infertility or just natural increase in those hormones is causing us to have to fight harder against these bacteria. And even just the, um, the depression of neutrophil chemotaxis and phagocytosis, like your immune system is not fighting the way that it normally does. Like it's at, it's at a disadvantage in addition to the fact that P intermedia is now ramping up. So it's just so interesting how estrogen and progesterone increasing naturally during pregnancy processes like can cause this to happen. So it just, it's, it's like, it's a great way to be able to tell our patients, like, look, it's really not you, right? It's it's hormonal. Like there, there is, we're not blaming you. It's just something that we have to deal with. It doesn't really matter at this point who's to blame because no one's to blame. Like we have to manage what's going on in your body right now. And we know that you're at a disadvantage, like your immune system isn't fighting how it usually does. And, you know, clinical indicators, we can see when that's happening. We can see the bleeding increase. We can see the probing depths increase, but it's interesting to look at the actual written um, research about these things and saying like on paper, this is what's happening. And now we know why we're seeing these clinical indicators and, and now we've got to treat them. Right. And I think that's, like I said, that was why for me, when I heard Yipping Han's research and on that particular case where, you know, it was a full-term baby that died, you know, in, in conjunction with a respiratory infection and that they found that, F, that, um, FN was actually in the baby's lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I thought, and, and, and the findings of it being not detected in the, in the supragingival plaque. That's what, I mean, for me, that's what takes me to that thought of the bacteremia they're creating isn't as dangerous as what we're creating because mm-hmm. they're not going subgingival. So on that front, I want to say that I think we're super, super blessed to live in the era that we do live in where salivary testing is an option. 
And I think, honestly, I think it's our responsibility to offer our patients that, that option of actually seeing what's present and what's going on bacterially, um, especially if we're seeing those clinical signs of inflammation and bleeding. Um, if there's been any history of a, you know, a previous pregnancy that was preterm or low birth weight, if they've had history of miscarriage um, or infertility. And I think especially, I think we need to be very mindful. Um, you know, Brittany, I know you said at the beginning, like, hey, I haven't experienced pregnancy, so I don't really understand that side of it. I have never thankfully experienced infertility or miscarriage. So I don't, you know, I feel like I don't feel fully understand that side of it either. I, I want to be very empathetic to that, but I haven't experienced it myself. Mm -hmm. But just in talking to the patients who have and watching friends and, you know, people around me, family, um, I think we have to be super mindful of those patients that have especially gone through um, miscarriage or fertility treatment, because, you know, there's been, especially fertility treatment, there's been some huge investments that they have made, yep. um, you know, in their timing, in their finances, for sure, in their emotional journey. Um, and honestly, I just saw a patient yesterday, she came in as a new patient, and she uh, is 25 weeks pregnant, she just got pregnant, or she, this is her first pregnancy, they have been battling with infertility for eight years. And this was her fourth go round on IVF. So when I'm looking at a patient like that, I'm thinking, Ooh, I'm a little, I feel like I'm a little on eggshells here because I want to do everything I can to help protect this pregnancy with this patient. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like for me, my very best way to do that is to start with salivary testing, because if I know what we're up against before I even stick a scalar subgingively, I just think that makes the most sense. Um, because, you know, sometimes we're really surprised by what's actually there. And I know you have a patient, you and I talk all the time and we share our stories, which I love. Um, I know you had a patient recently that you saw that you were kind of surprised by what you saw from a salivary standpoint. So I wanted you to talk a little, you to talk a little bit about her um, before we talk about some of the, the treatment options. Yeah. So I had a patient uh, not long ago and, and just as a disclaimer, we're still in the middle of her treatment. So I'll tell you kind of what I've done so far, but I don't have final anything to kind of like report back. I'll just give like an overview of what I saw and what struck me and what I thought was abnormal and what led me to make the decisions that I did. So um, the patient was 26 years old. It was a female, obviously she doesn't have any allergies. She's taking prenatal vitamins, no history of surgeries. Uh, systemically, she reported that she had two miscarriages within a six month period. Um, and it was within the, you know, the last six months, this is like the end of last year, beginning of this year. Uh, she also reported unilateral axillary lymph node intermittent swelling. Uh, it was unexplained. She had it investigated by her OB and there was no real reason. It wasn't pathologic according to the OB. Um, so she wasn't sure why that happened. Also had some unexplained joint pain. She didn't have an official autoimmune diagnosis, but she suspected that there could be something autoimmune, you know, like uh, psoriatic arthritis, RA, something of, of that nature. Um, her chief complaint was that she was overdue for hygiene. So her last visit was two years prior to this visit. And I believe it was a prophy. Um, I had never seen this patient. So we're, you know, I'm walking in as the new provider. I'm updating med history. So I just gathered all this information and immediately, you know, the wheels in my brain start turning like, okay, this healthy, young, vibrant 26 year old recently had two miscarriages. She has joint pain. That's abnormal. You know, she's got this lymph node swelling, like something is going on with her systemically. So that was my first thought. 
Um, clinically, when I look at her gingiva, she's got this like nice, firm, pink gingiva, not even rolled at the margin, you know, not very light uh, calculus accumulations on lower linguals, um, light generalized plaque along the gingival margin, um, and, and nothing remarkable, just looking, right? So I go in to do my perio chart and Upon periocharting, I discover she's got four to six millimeter probing depths. A lot of it on the lingual was like gingival margin, like it was kind of hypertrophic. It wasn't so much that she had bone loss. Like looking at the x-rays that uh, the laminadura and that um, the highest point of that alveolar crest was about one to two millimeters under the CEJ. So it wasn't like, you know, a bone loss issue. It was a little bit of hypertrophy. But again, clinically, when I'm looking at it, it looks like nice tight pink tissue until I actually start probing. And then I also had moderate bleeding generally upon probing. So I'm getting four to six millimeter probing depths. These like healthy looking bite wings with bleeding everywhere, right? So I'm like, there's something going on here. We've got to do some investigating. So uh, I recommended doing salivary testing. I recommended gingivitis, debridement, and periotrays. So the patient was really adamant. She really wanted to have a cleaning that day. If I could do it over, I'd probably say, hey, let's put that on the back burner until we get your salivary test results. Um, I did a gingivitis debridement for her, uh, submitted the salivary test results, scanned her for perioprotect trays the same day, um, because no matter what, you, no matter what we were moving forward with, we were definitely doing perioprotect trays. That was like 100% certainty. I got her results back and I think she had eight of the 11 peri periodontal pathogens above threshold. So above what her body could handle without uh, intervention from me, you know, right. yeah. um, it was just startling. I was like looking at this person, like I, I had my suspicions, but seeing it on paper was like, oh my God, like this person actually has like a lot of issues going on. Um, so I consulted with my periodontist, which is our protocol at Spodak. I consulted with her general dentist, the periodontist recommended um, a four-week follow-up when I'm delivering the perio trays, um, do a perio chart, depending on the inflammation and the probing depths that day, we would either prescribe um, oral antibiotics as recommended by our salivary testing company, which would have been amoxicillin and metronidazole. I think it would have been for 10 days for both of those. And also two days after starting that, do scaling and root planning or gingivitis therapy again, something to disrupt the, the biofilm. So um, I did see her for four week follow-up. She did have generalized, uh, shrinkage of the perio pocket. So she did have, you know, reduction in inflammation, general probing depths were three to four. I think there was a localized five. I still disrupted the biofilm. You know, I didn't put her on systemic antibiotics because she was not sure if she was pregnant at that time. They were still trying to get pregnant. So I did deliver her perio trays though, and gave her instructions for using the perio gel with the perio tray. So that's kind of where we are now. I haven't followed up with her since then, but I just feel good that she's at least got those perio trays and she's kind of on a on her way to a much healthier environment should she get pregnant and a much lower risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes, you know, right. if, if and when she does get pregnant. So and it's just an example of you can't judge a book by its cover. Like I can't say enough, you know, nothing irks me more than when a dental health professional looks at someone's bite wings and they're like, oh, they're fine. Oh, profi. You know, like that is such an ignorant statement. And I feel like sometimes when we have experience, we want to just, you know, say, oh yeah, that looks fine. Like we've seen the worst and that looks fine. There's no big deal, but we need to get curious. And there's a reason why, you know, we learn all these baseline things. And there's a reason why we do the assessments that we do, because we can't tell just by the bite wings and just by looking at the patient's mouth, what's going on. You know, we are investigators. We've got to investigate until we get answers. So like, I'm glad that in my brain, 
in that instance, I was curious, like, what is going on with this young, healthy person systemically? And then did the salivary testing because it was enlightening. Yeah. And I know that you, you said she had eight out of the 11 pathogens that mm -hmm. were above threshold. Mm -hmm. And I know because you and I had talked about it, that you said FN was one of those really high yeah. ones, which isn't yeah. surprising considering she'd had two miscarriages. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a big driver in that. But also I think you told me that the PG and the PI were really high, which can also be associated with arthritis. Yeah which could be what's going on with her joint yep. pain. I remember looking at the, the comorbidities and the, the links and being like, oh, that explains it. Yeah, so I think you're right. I don't have the report in front of me to say yes for sure, but I, I do remember saying, oh yeah, that's why, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's just, you know, what you just said is so true. You know, you don't, you can't read a book by its cover. And even like you said, even just visually looking in her mouth and being like, gosh, the tissue looks pink and tight and, you know, it's not even rolled. Like things look okay. And I feel like, this is just proof, more proof to me that we, we literally just kind of work in the dark, you know, yeah. like without that salivary test, you wouldn't have really known like, oh my gosh, she is teeming with bacteria. Mm -hmm. This makes so much sense. And so obviously Brittany and I are big champions of using salivary testing and um, you know, what makes life fun for us is we sometimes get to use different things. So I'm a big fan in our practice, we use oral DNA. Um, I know Brittany and her practice use, uses microblink DX. Um, we both love both of them. So, you know, if you're a listener and you really haven't, you know, kind of breached into doing some salivary testing, get curious, look around at what's out there, reach out to us on our mighty network, you know, ask on the network. I'm sure there's other people in our network that are using different companies, but start looking around to see what's out there that you can be using. Because to me, at this point, I think it's our responsibility to offer that to our patients. Um, and, you know, I have that conversation, especially with my patients that have had previous miscarriage or who have had or are having a substantial periodontal infection going on or have gone through uh, fertility treatments like, hey, you've been through a lot already. I want to help ensure that you have the safest, healthiest pregnancy possible. Let's look at what we've got going on here before we really start getting in here and digging around. Yeah. You know, and especially your IVF patients have made a huge investment in getting pregnant. They want to protect that. So I think that's just a responsible way to do it. And the patient that I mentioned that I saw yesterday that is 25 weeks pregnant because of all of her complications and because of her situation, they also have her on two different blood thinners. So that's another thing that's very common when you have patients that have gone through the IVF. Um, that's something to be mindful of because they are going to be more pr prone to bleeding, even if they are healthy, but like Brittany's 26 year old patient, you don't know what's there. So you got to know before you get in there and, and start disrupting things. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think, you know, you mentioned perioprotect and if you've listened to us at all, you know, we're huge fans. It is completely safe for pregnancy. Um, I have talked to multiple OBGYNs, you know, and that's one of the things I say to my patients, Hey, this is what I'd like to do. I would like to do salivary testing. Let's see what we've got going on. If there are some high levels of these really bad bacteria that are going to put you at risk, I would like to reach out to your OBGYN, make sure they know what's going on. Ideally, I would love to treat you. I think the very best treatment that we could use is perioprotect trays mm -hmm. because Brittany, I'm with you. I, I don't love to prescribe antibiotics unless it's absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. And I've used perioprotect long enough to know that it's going to do what we need it to do. So 
if we can go that route instead of antibiotics, I think that just makes so much more sense from an overall health standpoint. Um, so that would be route number one for treatment. Um, and then if for some reason they're not open to that, if financially that's not an option for them, or they're just not willing to commit to wearing them or, you know, something in life is preventing that, say they're like super, super sick. You know, they've got a lot of um, nausea and vomiting going on. And they're like, I, I gag just brushing my teeth. I can't put trays in my mouth. Then I think our alternative would be treating with antibiotics prior to doing some scaling and root planing, just so we've got that bacteremia aspect covered. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously for those of you who work in states um, where you're allowed to use laser therapy, I think that is a beautiful option. Yeah. Pocket disinfection, man. Yeah. I hope that comes to Florida and Georgia, like within our practice years, because that is a game changer for sure. Yeah. So I just think, you know, our, our goal here is to just get us all thinking a little differently about, you know, how we look at these patients, how we care for them, that, you know, we really walk through this journey with them and, and do it in the safest, most mindful, healthy way possible. Um, there's some other things that I think we want to talk about that occur during pregnancy that I just think we need to be aware of, um, you know, erosion of enamel can be an issue. Obviously, if we have patients that are, you know, uh, vomiting frequently and having a lot of morning sickness or, you know, and that can range. I've had patients who are only sick in their first trimester, and I've had patients who have been sick all the way through. I've had patients who've needed to be hospitalized um, because they, you know, they can't stay hydrated. Yeah. So erosion of enamel is an important thing to consider, especially if you have patients who already have de high decay rates. Um, so that, you know, being mindful of what do you have to offer them from a demineralization or from a remineralization standpoint, um, whether that's a fluoride gel or an MI paste, um, even just having them use a baking soda toothpaste or rinse with a baking soda kind of and water mixture to neutralize after that's a really smart thing to take into account. Um, obviously, you know, ideally we're not going to be taking an FNX and a Panorex on a new patient. Um, I do think taking x-rays now that we're in the digital age is a whole lot safer. Um, and I think if we need to get a PA here or there and, you know, we can double, double our apron and that kind of thing, I think that, that that's a safe thing. Um, but I will say I'm so jazzed that we use the iTero in our practice. That's what I did for my patient yesterday. Um, she had x-rays sent over, but they were from a year and a half ago. So obviously I would have loved to um, update, but because we have the iTero that has the NERI capability, we did that instead. So she was really impressed that that was an alternative option. And, um, you know, NERI to me is a great adjunct. It's not your, gonna be your primary tell. Right, that's what I, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah. I don't think that it's um, for, you know, diagnosing decay. Right. I think it can right. give us an idea of what's going on, but I don't think it's meant for that. And right. I think that's what, yeah, diagnosis right there. But I yeah. think that that is a great way to know, like, okay, is this person high risk? Like what's going on? Do we have a small, you know, yeah. insight into what's going on for this person? Can we do anything topically between now and the time they have their, their baby? Yep. Yeah. And I know for her specifically, there were three very small areas that we saw interproximally with the NERI that we were like, Hey, this is small. This isn't something big. We're going to make a note of it after you've delivered, we'll go ahead and take the, you know, the bite wings and, and look specifically at those areas and see if there's anything going on. But it is, it's just a smart way early on to see. And, you know, if there is something really big going on, you're going to be able to see it on the NERI. Um, 
and, and just kind of go from there. And maybe that's where you take a localized PA. Right. Right. That's a great idea. Um, a lot of time, you know, people don't realize too, that with pregnancy, because of all those crazy hormones, um, it can actually loosen up the, the tissues and the bone that keep your teeth in place. And it can make teeth loose. I mean, the same way that it's loosening up all the joints and the hips to spread and, and all of that, it can also do the same thing in teeth. So having some looseness during pregnancy is not uncommon. Um, and it's just, again, helping patients be aware of that. Being aware of patients that are bruxers during pregnancy is super important. They may, may need to get in a night guard during that time. Um, and then I, Brittany, have you ever seen pyogenic granuloma in, in life? I have, I have in a textbook. I have not seen it in real life, actually. Yeah. yeah. Same for me. So I kind of hope I don't, but we do know that that is an option where you have the pregnancy tumors that are typically, you know, interproximal between the teeth. Um, they, you know, red and raw, they bleed really easily. And, you know, they say that pla heavy plaque can contribute to those. So again, that's just another reason to see the patient frequently and help them, um, come to a great home care routine to really maintain that. Do you um, know, do you know what would be involved if it, if it doesn't, um, resolve on its own? Do you know what would be involved in removing it? Would it be like a laser? Yes. Um, okay. Like, I, like an external laser procedure. So that would be a referral to the, you know, the oral surgeon. Right. To do that. Um, but they typically, they say they typically resolve on their own, but if you have something that's super large and just, you know, uncomfortable and not resolving, then yeah, I think that would be a referral out. So, you know, I think obviously caring for our pregnant or hopefully soon to be pregnant patients is a really big responsibility. And I know that all of us take it really, really seriously. So we hope that today's podcast has shed some light on all the research out there and will get you thinking in a new direction about how to best facilitate healthy pregnancy outcomes and be the best clinician you can be. And like I said, we're going to attach all the links uh, to the articles that we mentioned today. So you can do some reading for yourself. And as we always say, we welcome collaboration. We want to hear what your thoughts are, what your ideas are, what treatment modalities you use, what you have set in place. So we always want to encourage you to reach out to us through our Mighty Network. You just download Mighty Networks app and then search out Bulletproof Hygiene and please come chat with us. Brittany, do you have any final thoughts on pregnancy? No, um, I'm avoiding it like the plague personally, um, but I feel very informed and ready to treat our pregnant patients. And a lot of this was a, a very good review, but I love, love, love that you included so much research in this because that's what speaks to me the most and to our, uh, our audience the most. So that was really cool. Thanks for all the prep work you did on this, Teresa. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone have a great week and come chat with us on our Mighty Network. See you soon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.